0: Okay, let's get started. Um, I want to do this early term class survey. I, I haven't done this in this class before, but I think it could be really valuable. And I was just talking with my, my wife <coughs> excuse me, today about, about my class and just how's it going? And I said, well, one of the problems with the grad class is that we've got people all across the spectrum of experience and, of course, taste. And I don't mean taste like you guys have good taste. I mean that taste for the material. You're all required as grad students to take a stats class. So some of you are probably here because your advisor said, get that out of the way with froze because then you don't have to walk down the hill. And some of you said, well, you know, maybe I'll get it done with froze. I don't have to walk down the hill or whatever. There's a variety of reasons why you're here. and And so it's hard for me to please all of you all of the time to go as fast as the those of you with the strongest background want, or as slow as those of you with the least background would like. So, if you, if we can, well, I'll leave some time at the end of the class to do this, but just think about this. Maybe um, what's what's good and what it could be better um, so far. We're pretty early on. Uh, I think it was useful to spend some time on Wednesday working on the homework because, you know, we're we're now several weeks several weeks. How many weeks in are we? What is this week five? Yeah, this is week, we're in week five and you hadn't actually had an opportunity to do much regression yet. Just me standing up here talking about it. So I wanted to get you doing something to try and make some connections between what we've been talking about uh, and what we're actually going to do. So I'll, um, if I forget, please remind me to leave, give 10 minutes at the end of the class or something for you to do this. It's anonymous. If you really don't want to write it down on a piece of paper and give it to me before you go, you can write it down on a piece of paper and stick it in my box, in the mailroom, whatever you want. It's not, it's, it's only to make this better for you, so, uh, okay, so let's, let's leave that for now, and we'll switch over back to the document camera, so where we left off, where we left off, was with this, <clears throat> we were looking at matrix approach to regression, and actually we were a page ahead of this, but I wanted just to come back, because this is kind of the key uh, page in this little handout, where we talk about, uh, where I bring together the matrix algebra and the solution to the uh, normal equations. So I actually think that I didn't write those normal equations on the board when we first talked about the solution to simple linear regression, so I'll just restate it. If, we, if, you, take, if you take this uh, sum of squares residual and you take partial derivatives with respect to the unknown set to zero, simplify and solve, you end up with this system of two equations for simple linear regression. For simple linear regression. And earlier in this handout I showed you that this X transpose X matrix simplifies to N, sum of X, sum of X, and sum of X squared. That looks like the right-hand pieces here. X transpose Y sums to those things. We know that we can express the regression coefficients using a matrix of, uh, in that case, it's 2 by 1. Then X transpose X beta looks like the left-hand side of this system of two equations. And um, the right-hand side is x transpose y. So in other words, x transpose x b is equal to x transpose y. It's just re-expressing the normal equations in matrix format. <clears throat> Since we can uh, pre-multiply by the inverse in order to solve for an unknown, if we pre-multiply both sides of this equality by the inverse, x transpose x inverse, right? x transpose x inverse, x transpose x b, X transpose X inverse, X transpose Y. This goes away because that's just the identity matrix, and we get our solution for our regression coefficients based on our samples, X transpose X inverse, X transpose Y. All you have to do is buy it. Eh, sounds like you're probably right, Robert. If you can go that far, then we're good. Okay, and you'll encounter this a few times in your textbooks. The good news is not very often, but you may have to use use it now and then. By definition, and if you'd like proof I've got to go get a far thicker regression textbook, the variance-covariance matrix of the coefficients is, this, is uh, it takes this form. This is just sigma squared, it's another way of saying the variance-covariance matrix of the regression coefficients in that notation. It's the, uh, the variance, uh, this, this, this one here is the variance of The intercept, this one here, is the variance of the slope. This is the covariance of the intercept and slope, and this is the covariance of the slope and the intercept. That's the form of the matrix. This is in population notation. Normally, in in samples, we replace that with the mean squared error. So the MSE goes in here. So you find this, actually you can find this, by multiplying this X transpose X inverse. This plays a role in in a lot of pieces, um, by the estimate of the, standard error, or sorry, this is the variance. In, prax- in practice, we substitute our sample-based estimate, so instead of writing sigma squared, the variance-covariance matrix of the regression coefficients, we would say S squared of these, and you can estimate it using mean squared error times this X transpose X inverse. And part of the numerical uh, issues in solving for regression is how to find this inverse, because X is just your data, it's your design matrix, it's a column of ones plus all the observations of your X variables. You can transpose that, that's not too bad. You can do matrix multiplication, that's not too bad. It's the finding the inverse that's the challenge in large matrices. There's a there's a numerical way to do it for two by two matrices. Do You remember how to do that? I know we did this in high school, solving a system of equations with two unknowns and it's like the quadratic, for, no it's not the quadratic, what's it called? It's A squared plus two AB divided by, I can't remember what it was. There's a way to find the inverse. Very easily um, to solve for that. But the, your, your regression software will use some complex or optimized numerical methods to find it for you. There's a special matrix called the hat matrix. And the hat matrix tazer, takes a role in uh, finding leverage, residuals that have a lot of leverage. And so the reason I'm putting it up here is just so you've heard of it, but it also helps just show a few more operations with matrices, if the fitted values are just the design matrix times the coefficients, and as we said on the last handout, the coefficients are X transpose X inverse X transpose Y, then we can re-express this fitted values as replacing uh, the B with its, its matrix form and X. Then we can call this little piece here, this X times X transpose X inverse times X transpose This little piece, we can call it the hat matrix. Since matrix operations proceed from left to right, we can take any piece starting from the beginning to the left and call it the hat matrix. Call it the hat matrix. Why is it the hat matrix? i thought about this every year and I go, that's because that's what puts the hat on Y. The hat matrix takes your measured values and finds their fitted values. I don't know if that's actually where the name the hat matrix comes from, but it sure sounds sensible to me because it takes your y and puts a hat on it. Take your measured values of y, just think of this, if you're fitting a regression where you want to predict soil carbon as a function of stand age, what's your y variable, soil carbon? What's your x variable, stand age? Well, the hat matrix takes your measured values of y and finds the corresponding fitted values on the regression line for a simple linear regression. So it's the matrix that puts a hat on y. That's about as funny as statisticians ever get. Cute, I should say. It's not funny. It's trying to be cute. Definitely not funny. We can define the variance-covariance matrix of the residuals. All right. If the residuals, E, are just the difference between the measured and the fitted values, right, that's a residual. It's from the measured and the fitted value and we can express them in matrix notation also using the hat matrix. It's the measured values minus the hat matrix times Y because the hat matrix times Y makes it Y hat. You can factor Y out of this to the right and you get the residuals are I minus H times Y since IY equals Y, the I being the identity matrix. The variance, covariance of matrix happens to be the variance of the <coughs> the residual variability times this hat, this 1 minus i minus the hat matrix and again with a sample based estimate we replace that with the mean squared error. Why do we do this? Because the hat matrix is going to play a role in how we define uh, distance and leverage for residuals because the cert- observations that are far from their fitted values sometimes don't have a lot of influence on the position of the regression line but sometimes they have a significant influence on in the position of a line and it's not always obvious just from graphing especially when you have uh, multiple regression and, l- and I want to show you this by illustration, I'll reinforce it later a great way to do it is just with a drawing let me draw you a regression line and tell me what you think so here's a me- uh, measure of tree age starting with zero, and here's tree height. And I've got all these observations, and then I have one observation out here. Is that possible? Yeah, I don't know, it's top broke off, or it's a little suppressed sugar maple, or whatever. Is that going to have any influence on the regression line? Well, if the real line maybe goes like this, it's got a massive residual, massive, right? Residual, So the y value here is maybe small, maybe three feet, and the fitted value up here is maybe hundred feet. It's got a massive residual. Is that going to have an influence on the line? Heck yeah, it's going to tip the line way down like that when you fit it to minimize the sums of squared residuals. It's going to take a lot of, it's going to increase a lot of residuals within the, this space in order to diminish this residual here. Do you want to leave that point in your data? In your model in your fitting? Probably not. This residual is sometimes very hard to visualize when you have multiple predictors. Here I've only got one X. What if I have two? I can draw you a plane and you can probably see some residuals that are really high up there and you can sometimes find fairly large residuals just by calculating them because the residual is a, is a single number. But a really large residual out here and out here, residuals, really large residuals near the mean of X don't have that much effect on the regression line. So you might not worry so much about these residuals. It's this residual has a lot of leverage. And those residuals are harder and harder to find when you get into multiple regressions because you don't know how far they are away from the joint mean of all your predictors. We need some method to find them and you can say well sounds like a lot of work but imagine if you're a drug company you know or something where there's a lot of money on on the line or you just happen to really care about whatever species in, invasive species you're worried about or whatever endangered species you want to protect so they can they can be very important we'll we'll talk about this uh, a little bit later on just another example of how we can use the matrix notation is that we can sim- we can express predicted values here, but when I say predicted I mean different from fitted. We fitted we fit a regression line and estimated the coefficients here using one data set, and we've gone and collected some more data. Right? These are xks. So if a, if an x if it's a simple linear regression, we've got some new observations. We multiply it by our Uh, our vector of regression coefficients, you turn that sideways, lay it on top, multiply the two together, add them all up, and you get a y hat. And you can find their standard errors of those predictions by taking the mean squared error and multiplying it by, again, that X transpose X inverse reappears. This X transpose X inverse is from the fitted model, from the original fitted model, the one you use to estimate the coefficients this x transpose k and this x k are the new data are the new data and it actually turns out since this thing is a constant you can place it anywhere you want mse the mean squared error times this x transpose x inverse is just the variance covariance matrix of the coefficients so you can find the standard error of a fitted value by taking this x transpose k multiplying it by the variance covariance matrix and then multiplying it post multiplying it by x transpose k what does that matter? It's just to show you something that we've derived for simple linear regression in matrix terms. Yes? So you're saying you'd have to kind of have field validated data twice? Like the first well, no. A curve and then after well, you fit it, then go and data. Yeah, but that's a reasonable scenario of, say, like, I want to predict the height of a red pine tree from its diameter and so I pay somebody to go out and collect a lot of data and come back and give it to me and I build a model, then I make that available to my client. So they don't have to measure heights anymore, they just measure diameters. And so they go out and they on some stand of interest and they collect a bunch of diameter data, they, they want to get estimates of height, they just use my regression. But in order for them to get prediction intervals on those estimates, I need to give them this variance-covariance matrix as well. I can't just give them the coefficients, the slope and intercept. I've got to give them the variance-covariance matrix, or this this X transpose X inverse in the middle, in order for them to generate um, prediction intervals. Again, that's not complicated for a small, for simple linear regression, it's just a two-by-two matrix. And again, I'm I'm only reiterating this because I've heard it now, meeting after meeting for the last two years, is ignored too much in natural resource management. people will go out and measure tree diameters and heights, then they'll use a regression to predict tree biomass, then they'll summarize for their whole stand inventory as if tree biomass was measured, but it's not measured. It was predicted using an equation. So it has error in it. In addition to the sampling error of the inventory, there's a prediction error associated with it. And if you don't include that prediction error, you underestimate your confidence intervals in stand biomass, and we're worried these days about carbon sequestration. We don't want to be overconfident in how much carbon we have in a forest stand. And so this is becoming important. You, you go to the literature, I've asked my students to do this. Go, I want you to predict, I want you to give me an estimate of, of biomass for this stand. And they'll take, go and find a nice equation, the Forest Service did in 1972. They'll predict biomass for each tree and then they'll summarize the inventory dutifully using standards, uh, survey statistics and come up with an estimate. In fact, you might even use FVS to do that, um, a growth model that my modeling students are doing. But it doesn't consider this error that comes from the underlying equation. It's growing to be more and more important and we're going to see that in, in um, emerging in things like certification audit standards and in carbon uh, program trading programs, and we're going to see it in journal articles when people try to do studies on this and say, because I'm currently analyzing a bunch of experimental data, and I'm going to be using regression equations to predict individual tree biomass to try and come up with an idea of whether different tree densities affected soil carbon. I'm going to have to consider that when I do it, otherwise my journal article will get rejected. Or may. Depends if a biometrician gets it or an ecologist. Ecologists are getting more and more quantitative these days. Where, how did I get on that sidetrack? Any questions about this? It's important, Just let's just think about that, it's important. Think about all your sources of error because if you pretend measurements are known when they're not, you can be anti-conservative. You can be more confident than you think you are. That can result in more power than you think you have. And that can result in rejecting null hypotheses that shouldn't be rejected. And we want to do that only alpha percent of the time. Not more than alpha. Otherwise, we're we're uh, we're not drawing objective conclusions. A- any questions? You could flip this around, by the way, and think of it as a trick you could employ in order to find significance and get your paper published. So once you have data, you then analyze that for like specific parameters and use those parameters. No, here this is the, this is what's going on behind the scenes inside R. Okay, this so is what's how going do on. You do this by hand? You'll never do this by hand, most likely, unless, except certain cases where you might need to extract the variance-covariance matrix from a regression so that you can generate these. You're going to use somebody else's model in your in your analysis. You need you need this thing in order to generate those standard errors of the fitted values, or you might need it in error propagation, or we might need to. Uh, use weighted regression, where we're going to have to come up with a weight matrix. You may just supply it to an R function, but you have to compose the matrix the correct way. Or in cases where this variance covariance matrix of the residuals, if this thing here is not an I, if we don't have a, uh, independent identically distributed residuals and our hat matrix assumes IID, and if, if we end up With a variance-covariance matrix of our residuals, that is um, not—it's not a diagonal, symmetric, with a constant value down the middle. Yeah. There's got to be limitations to what you could take the standard error and still apply it to your own data set, wouldn't there? Or is it? Well, we tend to estimate it. We estimate it with the mean squared error. This is the variance. The standard error is the square root of this so the root mean squared error, we estimate it. But there are a lot of, that standard error has to, in order for our estimator that we typically use to be the correct estimate, we have to meet these assumptions in regression. IID normal, usually. At least IID, IID symmetric, if not IID normal. And so a good portion of what you will do when you evaluate regression models is make sure you've got that correct. By the way, that assumption is true for ANOVA as well. Any of you have analyzed analysis of variance problems, you need constant variance and normality in an analysis of variance as well. It's a common problem with, with uh, least squares, not common problem, it's a common issue with least squares in order to conserve our estimates of alpha in the subsequent uh, statistical tests. So, but you're going to estimate it from your data. It's always going to be estimated from your data. Any other questions? All right, let's carry on. Isn't regression fun? Not at this point, it's not. Just seems like a lot of work right now. For me, what's really cool with regression is always when I get to the point that I take a bunch of equations and I put them together in a computer program and I start growing trees. But that's just my one of my research areas. The other one is, talk to my grad student, Mike Premer, who took this class, it's 2014, two years ago, and is now analyzing the data he spent two years collecting, and at first he was wondering whether he made the right choice to go to grad school, Uh, but now he's got some really cool nonlinear mixed effects regressions fit to biomass data he collected, and he's pretty, he's pretty keen on that, so. It happens, eventually you too will, will get it and you will make a nice figure and your advisor will smile. And then you'll smile too and you'll think, someday better than a grad stipend, I can see it coming. Someday, I don't have to buy Budweiser, I can step up to KBC. <laughs> I went to Walmart yesterday, KBC was $8.50 at Walmart, man, that's expensive. Anyway, uh, Walmart is an evil place. All right, so we paused briefly because where I went with multiple regression uh, was I introduced the concept of multiple predictors of, for, for a, a two-predictor equation. We have a plane. For mul- more than two predictors, we have some kind of hyperplane. I defined the, the, in this context of multiple regression the same ideas, the observations of x and y, their corresponding fitted values, the y-hats the residuals, little EIs, the difference between their measured and fitted values. And um, we talked about uh, how to find solution for that hyperplane, for the coefficients of that hyperplane uh, using matrix terminology. Again, R will do that for you behind the scenes, but there are some cases where uh, it helps to have some vocabulary and you'll encounter them in the textbook. And I did. Ah, well, I'll find another time. I did, I did find some in the textbook the other day. We still haven't answered the question, is the regression useful? Now, we can derive for multiple regression the same kind of overall f-test that we had for simple linear regression by decomposing the sums of squares. So we have the sums of squares total which is always the difference between the observations and their mean. And there's no, there's no x in here. It's just the sums of squares of y. This thing is sometimes called the sums of squares y, syy, sums of squares t. Sometimes it's sums of squares total. What other notation? Yeah, well, that's enough of them anyway. We can decompose this into the portions that are due to the regression line, or the in this case the regression surface, the regression hyperplane. That's the residual. And the sum of squares residuals. So that's our sums of squares regression. I'm supposed to say reg. And this is our sums of squares residual. I have to be careful because I often, my G and my S often start to look the same. Some people call it SSE or SSE for sums of squared error. Error is really not the right term because error implies a mistake, and all observations have residuals. It's not an error. And we can set up an ANOVA table, just like an analysis of variance, just like we did for simple linear regression, where we have a source of the regression. Residual and the total. You can calculate these sums of squares. They're going to have various degrees of freedom, sums of squares, mean squares, and an F statistic. We always draw this thing when we teach regression. Textbooks always put it up too. When you fit a regression in R, and you've done this now, do you get this table? You don't. You'll get an estimate. of the, If you do summary on an LM object, you'll get parts of this table. You'll certainly get, this is the F calc by the way, you'll get the calculated F-statistic and you'll get these degrees of freedom, regression of residual and you'll get the mean squared residual, that's this one here The square root of that is the standard error You'll get those pieces, but rarely the table The reason the table is done is because it allows us to derive the F-statistic So you're going to take this sums of squares regression that just comes from over here Calculate that for your data, your sums of squares, residual, and you don't actually need the total at this point. The mean squared regression is just the sums of squares divided by its degrees of freedom, and your F calculated is mean squared regression divided by mean squared residual. This is a ratio of variances. This thing is compared to an F distribution as your reference distribution. We need the degrees of freedom to do this. And we derive the degrees of freedom, and I said for simple regression, that's an equality as well, right? So you can derive the degrees of freedom by looking at the number of independent observations. We have N of these little observations, and we have one sample mean for Y. So our our degrees of freedom for the sums of squares total is n minus 1. For our regression, we have n of these fitted values and we have one of those sample means. But we know that we only need for a simple linear regression, we only need two points to define every other fitted value. So we we put in 2 here instead of n. 2 is actually the number of predictors plus 1, right? For simple linear regression, two points for a line. We have 1x plus 1 is 2. So the actual replacement here is k plus 1, where k is the number of predictor variables, the number of x's, number of predictor variables. And the same thing happens over here. We have n of these, but we also have n of those, but we really only need k plus 1 predictors to define the surface. So we end up with k here, and we have n minus k minus 1 here, and n minus 1 here. So, we're going to go to an F distribution. The F distribution is asymmetric, has a long tail, starts at zero. Every F distribution needs some degrees of freedom. To, to compare our F calculated, this is our F, cal- to our F to our F distribution, we need the degrees of freedom. We use the degrees of freedom from the numerator, that's for the regression, and degrees of freedom for the denominator. So, that's k and n minus k minus 1. Somewhere out here, we're we're gonna find some F-critical value that corresponds to alpha. If our F-calculated, I should have put, this is still the F-calc. If our F-calculated exceeds this F-critical, we're in the rejection region, and we reject our null hypothesis. If it's less than that, we fail to reject our null. We never wrote the hypotheses down, which is a mistake. If I can erase this. What were our hypotheses for this test? This test is a ratio of variances that functionally, or for me at least instinctively, I look at it as the sums of squared regression represents the signal, and the sums of squared residual represents the noise. And so if our signal-to-noise ratio is, is greater than one, then we have a significant relationship. So the formal hypotheses, statistical hypotheses for these, is that the variance due to the regression divided by the variance of the residual is equal to 1 HA, is that it's greater than, like that. Those are the formal hypotheses. But another way of expressing these hypotheses is actually in terms of the slopes. For simple linear regression, we knew that this hypothesis test was equivalent to saying, is the slope non-zero? For simple linear regression, in multiple linear regression, you can have an, you can explain more signal than noise if only one in cases where even just one of your slopes is greater than zero. So these can actually be reexpressed as um, no coefficients, no of these. Actually, we've got to do no beta. Um, <laughs> no. Let's do it this way. Like that. What's the alternative? At least one BK not equal to zero. Here's how multiple regression differs from simple regression. That if you conclude significance on this overall F-test, it doesn't mean that all of your coefficients are significant. It means that at least one of them are significant. And it's only in the case of simple linear regression where the t-test for the individual coefficient is equivalent to the F-test, because there only is one. But in multiple regression, the t-test is not equivalent to the f-test. Okay. All of the things that... Any questions, by the way? Please ask if you have any questions. All of the things that we did with multiple regression, talking about confidence intervals and hypothesis tests they all apply for multiple regression. And right now in your current homework, which is a bit focused on simple linear regression, you've had to derive a few of those by hand because it's not obvious in R right away how to do it. Most of you have found the, or I I pointed it out, but have remembered that I pointed out the confint function. You can use the confint function to get confidence intervals on your regression coefficients. I don't know how to do the hypothesis test for other than the the, the default hypothesis test, which is that the coefficients are equal to zero against the not equal to zero. Um, So we've derived it by hand by pulling the standard errors out of the table. So in multiple regression, you can construct, uh, and it happens that, I'll express this in terms of Uh, We can can do t-tests on individual predictors the same way that we did in simple linear regression, except we need to extract the standard errors of those individual predictors separately. And you can do it in R by just using the summary function and then literally retyping the values, but you can also get it in R, and I'll show you how, by using the VCOV function to extract the standard errors directly from the variance-covariance matrix of your fitted object. But For any, uh, for any null hypothesis that some coefficient uh, is zero against some alternative hypothesis, you can construct a t-statistic or a t-calc where you and these I'm a big believer in trying to find patterns in these these t calculated statistics are always the same at least in common practice they're always the same they're always some ratio and you always substitute in your sample based value minus the value under the null and you divide by the standard error of the sample based value of your statistic. I'm sorry I drew that a little close to this but you can you can take this t statistic and if we replace this I should have put j in here that's j for any given regression coefficient the trick of course is where do you get where do you get this value of the coefficient from under the null well it's it's from the way you set up your hypothesis test where do you get the sample based value you get it from having fit your regression model Right? It's a coefficient. It comes out of the summary table or it's in uh, the, the vector of regression coefficients in matrix form. You get that from, from your statistical software or you did it by hand. I don't think you did it by hand, not from multiple regression. And Where do you get the standard error? You get that from your statistical software as well. You're going to compare that to some t-critical right? T's distributions are symmetric, they're centered around zero, they have some number of degrees of freedom. What are the degrees of freedom you use in this statistical test? The degrees of freedom are always the ones associated with the variance. This variance here is coming from the variance-covariance matrix of your residuals. Your variance-covariance matrix of the residuals depended on the root mean squared error. The root mean squared error came from your F test, so it's the same number of degrees of freedom as you have degrees of freedom residual. What did I say that was? I think I said N minus K minus 1, did I say that? Yes. Yeah. Wow, I'm starting to memorize my notes. It's only taken 10 years. (laughs) Now, this is a two-sided hypothesis test. That means you're going to reject if your T uh, calculated falls in either of these rejection regions, The size of these regions defined by your choice of alpha over 2. Your homework has a situation where we have a one-sided hypothesis test in here. And Akwasi found it has a mistake in the textbook. It talks about upper or lower. And unfortunately, I closed the page. I've got to go find it again so we can email Pardo and tell him there's an error in his textbook. But if you're actually interested in a different alternative, if you're really interested in whether that slope is positive then we change the scenario where our rejection region is only in the right-hand side, right tail, and we can concentrate all our probability over there, and that increases the power of our statistical test, where power is rejecting false null hypotheses. So you're gonna find this upper T critical. If you do a lot of these T tests, one thing it's good to try and remember is that if if our alternative hypothesis is greater than one, we're, we're going to have, we're looking for, po- we're only going to reject if we have positive T calculated that are out here beyond the positive T critical. So if you, right away, if that's your alternative hypothesis, and, and you should learn in statistics, you're supposed to set these hypotheses up before you estimate, before you calculate your sample statistics, because you can introduce bias if you calculate them and go, oh, whoops, I got that my whole research hypothesis wrong, let me just rewrite the research hypothesis to match the data. That's a bad habit. But if your, if your alternative hypothesis was that the slope is positive and you, you immediately get a negative estimate for your statistic, you, you, you're, you're not gonna reject, boom. It can't possibly be positive if it's negative because this is gonna be a negative t calc. It's gonna be falling down here in the fail to reject region. The only way you're going to reject this hypothesis is if this t-calc is positive because it's a right-tailed test. So You don't have to go through the motions of calculating the p-value or the t-critical if you have a t-calc that's negative but an alternative hypothesis that's positive because you know your t-statistic has to be in the wrong tail of the distribution, so whatever. Definitely fail to reject on that one. This is also a a reason why you've got to be really careful using these tools in Excel because a lot of times, a lot of software wants to put absolute values in here and put the whole discussion on the right-hand side of the distribution. And if you have a negative hypothesis in here but you're doing an absolute t-calc because you can still draw your conclusions by just flipping everything, it sometimes leads to confusion. So be, be systematic when you work through these because you get kind of a muscle memory for how the hypothesis tests work. And it, it's, a, it's a mental check on whether you're doing it correctly. Uh, the same thing I wanted to mention is true for confidence intervals. You did them using the conf int function. That was really fast, principally because you don't have to extract the standard errors. But if you want uh, confidence intervals, you can derive them the same way. We can take this T thing, and we can sub it into that big probability statement. But by this point, you should just Try and remember that confidence intervals are always statistic. Plus or minus T with some, in this case, it's going to be N minus K minus 1. Alpha over 2, confidence intervals are always two-sided. Times the standard error of the statistic. That's an that's a alpha level confidence interval. Your textbook says find the confidence limits. If you like, these things are the half width of the interval. If you add it to BJ, that's the upper confidence limit. If you subtract it from BJ, that's the lower confidence interval limit. I always call these in my biometrics biometrics class the confidence interval half width. That's probably too much of a mouthful and I never should have done that. Um, I think Blair, Blair has encountered some students in, in forest Finance and uh, there's another term, we use this for um, uh, an error rate, what did he call it now? No, I've already forgotten what he called it, but. This, this, where do you get this standard error of tj from? You get it from the variance-covariance matrix of the coefficients. R automatically pulls it out, puts it in a table for you. Coefficient, estimate, standard error, t-calculated, p-value in R. If you want to get it, you can use the VCOV function in R, it'll extract the matrix, and then you can, but then you've got to remember what the matrix has looked like. The VK, VCOV is going to give you a matrix that has the estimate squared of each coefficient on the diagonal and it's going to have their covariances here. So when you use VCOV, you've got to remember to refer to one of these. I'll show you an example, so don't worry about writing this down. I've got a worked example for that. If you want to automate it, most folks don't put confidence intervals on their coefficients right away. They're using regression as an exploratory predictive tool, and we're focused more on these t-tests. So you just look at the output from the summary function, and you're done. But if you need to go further, you can do these things. Okay, I want to talk about a more general kind of f-test called a partial f-test. And your textbook talks about this as well, so it's important to cover, and partial f-tests are very powerful methods for comparing alternative models against each other. Well, the partial F-test. Okay, and here's how the partial F-test works. And I should have written this earlier. We can express, I said our null hypothesis, was that all of these Uh, regression coefficients, actually I should have put zero in there, because that's the intercept, right, the alternative was at least one of these, I should have said K, We can re express this hypothesis test that the model, to test models with alternative sets of predictors. We can, we can test that, uh, re express these. So this, this, is, this is the overall F test. It says that at least one of these predictors is zero but if you 've got some candidate models, I think my model should have these six predictor variables in it, and you want to test to see whether any one of those predictors is important, but you, you don 't know in this test which one is important if you want to test to see I think it might be b2 I want to see if it's, if it 's b2 that 's important you can s- construct for a partial f test the model that has that does not have b2 so this has got um, but I'll re-express it in terms of the mean function, that the expected value of Y given X1 is some value XK equals XK is the model without B2. I'm going to take B2. and our alternative is the full model, meaning this model uh, from up here. Uh, from up here. The model, full model with all, all of the individual predictors. So we have a full model that contains all the predictors, and a reduced model That drops that one predictor out. And we can use an F-test to evaluate this set of hypotheses. You set up a special kind of ANOVA table, and the order kind of matters, so I'll refer to my notes. Your source here, this is the um, uh, residual of the model without I'm saying beta 2, right? X2. And here's another one. That's the residual <coughs> excuse me, from the full model. I, I teach modeling before this, so I've been breathing chalk for almost two hours now. And then the, then you can calculate the difference between the two of these. And th- these are the residuals. So the source is our mean squared the sums of squared residual if you'd like. Excuse me. Now to top it all off my chalk is lost. It's usually a sign from fate that I should quit. There we go. Your degrees of freedom here are the degrees of freedom associated with the corresponding residuals. All right. If you fit a full model, what are the degrees of freedom associated with the mean squared residual? I said it was n minus k minus 1. Or did I? I think I did. What are the degrees of freedom associated with the mean squared residual if you drop one predictor? It's going to be n minus k minus 1 minus 1 more because you lost one predictor. The difference between these two is one degree of freedom. Then you can calculate the mean squares for these. You can go and get the relative sums of squares. And then you end up with the sums of squares. This is the sums of squares residual from the reduced. Here's the sums of squares residual from the full. And by subtraction, you come up with the sums of squares difference. Now we're going to take the mean square, which is the sums of squares, sums of squares difference divided by one, and the mean square for the full model, the the sums of squares residual divided by n minus k minus one, and we're going to come up with an F calculated statistic. And that F calc is, again, just the ratio of the two variances. And you're going to compare that to um, an F statistic with N minus 1, or with the two comparative degrees of freedom. And hold on a second. I want to give you the reference in your textbook because I have to quit. Nested model test, page 104. He calls it a nested model test, which is page 104. And it goes to page 109 is the example. So you end up with an F calculated here, which is the mean squared uh, difference divided by the mean squared residual. And you're going to compare to your f uh, reference distribute with the same degrees of freedom, it's going to be 1 and n minus, n minus k minus one. All 1. Right. We'll do an example on this. I'll show you how you do it in R. You use the ANOVA function in R to do this test. You just fit two models using LM and then use, feed them both to the ANOVA function and ANOVA will do this test for you. It'll be it'll be more clear once I show you with a worked example. Um, make sure I've I've asked you to read chapter three, but uh, you'll find the examples for this specific case on um, the nested model test. You can generalize this. By the way, you can take more than one predictor out. You can test a model with ten predictors against a model with five, if you'd like. You still get, you get more degrees of freedom in difference because this is always going to be n minus k minus one. This will be n minus k minus five minus one minus five, you can test nested subsets. The structure of the test is the same way. I really got to quit, sorry, (laughs) because Victor wants to get in here and teach. If you have any questions, ah, you guys were supposed to remind me we were going to do the early semester survey. Do a um, survey monkey. Okay, why not? I'll do that. That way we don't take class now. Yeah. All right. See you on Monday, right?